Broadway Bullet Volume 814. Want to produce? Are you wondering what a producer has to do or curious about producing yourself? We've got an episode chock full of interviews of interest to you. Kara Reichel and Peter Mills talk about their production company, Prospect Theatre Company, their fantastic growth, and areas you need to look out for when creating a company. Seth Sklar-Hein discusses his job producing and associate directing for Cameron McIntosh North America, as well as his working relationship with arguably the most successful producer of the modern theater. Ralph Lewis of Peculiar Works talks about dusting off the forgotten American classic, Androboros, and the challenges and joys of producing site-specific theater. Peter Bodio, general manager for too many Broadway shows to mention, talks about his numerous duties and his new book, aptly titled Broadway General Manager. Finally, Eleanor Speart, buyer for the Drama Bookshop, comes in to talk about the resources they provide everyone in celebration of 100 years of doing business. She also talks about writing your book, because face it, you know you want to write one. All of this, after this. This is Michael Gilbo with Broadway Bullet, and I just want to let you guys know that we are now starting to put up new episodes on YouTube as well for those people who just like to listen to audio on YouTube or find it easier. But in any case, it really helps if you can help get the word out. So whatever platform you're listening on, if you can like, share, subscribe, free podcast, it would really help. Tell people about us. Leave a comment. Uh, SoundCloud allows it. YouTube allows it. You know, so give us a review on iTunes. All right. A couple quick notes before we jump into this episode. Again, I want to remind people, if you are a composer-lyricist or a playwright or you know one, we are working on organizing a playwright's monologue showcase and a composer's song showcase to also video for YouTube content and to put the music up on in these episodes. That's going to be the composer showcase is going to be on Sunday, May 6th, and the writer's one is going to be Friday evening, May 11th. So if you know somebody who should be in on this, uh, drop me an email at broadwaybulletnyc at gmail.com. Also, we are still uh, recruiting for our freshman class for our brand new program in theater and business management at the University of Providence. It's a really unique program. We teach you how to be a businessman that the artist has to be. And we really have a focus on you guys creating your own work. Because if there's one thing I hear over and over talking to all these people is you need to be creating your own work. So we're going to help you do that and foster that. All right. For more information, we have a link at broadwaybullet.com to check that out. Special thanks to our location sponsor. Writers need a full community of support in order to do their important work. That's where DGF steps in. The Dramatist Guild Foundation is a national charity that fuels the future of American theater by supporting playwrights, composers, lyricists, and book writers at all stages of their careers. They do this by sponsoring educational programs, providing emergency aid to writers in need, and offering a free rehearsal space where I've recorded this episode. For any questions about how DGF might be able to help you, please visit dgf.org. Special thanks to our travel sponsor. I'd like to thank uh, my school, the University of Providence. They are our travel sponsor. They pay for me to get there, as well as a student to come help out and meet all these people and stay there. And this is all because it relates to the program that I created. It's the School of Theater and Business Arts. You learn the art of being an artist and the business of being an artist. 
because it is important. If you hear anything in this show, it's that these artists have to treat themselves as an entrepreneurial business. And you learn how to do that as well as your art at the University of Providence. Check us out. There's a link at broadwaybullet.com. And uh, if you are a senior or junior, come on out and visit us. We'd love to see you. So if you're liking what you're hearing from anybody you hear on this episode or any of our recent episodes, we have the full unedited interviews also available at SoundCloud. They're also on the show notes page at Broadway Bullet. Uh, The feed was getting a little cluttered with all that for the podcast itself. So what we are doing is we are putting them up just for the first week in the podcast. So if you're there, you can get them quick through there. Otherwise, they're all still up. Just go to broadwaybullet.com, search for the show, or go to soundcloud.com slash broadway-bullet and search for the episode you're looking for. Because I guarantee you, everyone we're speaking to on this episode has a lot more to say on a lot of different topics. So it's my way of providing a way for you guys to go a little deeper into those areas that specifically interest you. All right, let's get rolling. In the best of company. One great thing about this podcast for me is I get a chance to sometimes make good friends in the course of these interviews. And I've got back here with me uh, two two old friends who I've talked to and worked with in different capacities, uh, Cara Reichel and Pete Mills. How are you guys doing? Great. Thanks for having us. Glad to be back. And we're going to talk about a lot of things, but I know one of the biggest things we're here that I'm here to help you guys celebrate, because I know how hard and you work with your theater company, is that you've now landed a three-year residency with uh, 59 East 59 yes, Theaters. Yes, 59E59 59 Theaters, <laughs> which is at 59 East 59th Street. Um, Imagine that. Yeah, um, it's a great venue. Um, they have three different theaters in their building, and we've done a number of shows there in their 99-seat theater over the years. And Golden Boy, um, the Blue Ridge. Yeah, including in our show Golden Boy, the Blue Ridge. Theater um, B. Yeah, <laughs> but we are moving up to Theater A, which is the 199-seat um, theater. So we're going to be there each fall for the next three years. Twice as big as anything we've ever done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's really exciting, and mm-hmm. and I know you know the company has been. I feel like before I left, there was a big tenth anniversary mm-hmm. celebration. So that means we're heading into at least eighteen years. So how long? <laughs> There's yeah. different ways of doing so, the math. Um, we are considering the eighteen nineteen season to be our twentieth anniversary okay. because we actually were legally founded in nineteen ninety eight. But we didn't do our first show until 1999. So Spanning that season. Somewhere so, in there we yeah, turned so 20. We're, we're basically going into our 19th year of operations right now, and next year will be the 20th. So this residency is sort of a great uh, milestone and, and a stepping stone for us as we sort of move up to the next notch of off-Broadway. In, and not only does Pete put on a lot of shows with Prospect, but you've also launched... Uh, You've also been kind of the first one on many different writers' uh, mm-hmm. careers for putting up their shows. Do you want to give us a quick little name drop, crunch the floor, some of the... Yeah, I think, well, with, yeah. with Ryan Scott Oliver, was yeah. that his first yeah. New York... Yeah, we've sort of found our niche in terms of off- offering sort yeah. of a, the first New York premiere of work. Um, so, yeah, we, yeah. we did Jasper and Deadland, which was Ryan Scott Oliver's first production. Unlocked, Connor and Gregor. Which is Connor and Gregor. We're doing The Mad Ones by Kerrigan and Loudermilk. Yeah. Um, uh, we did uh, Tomorrow of the River, which also has a cast album out, which was uh, Marissa Michelson and Josh Cohen. Um, gosh, uh, <laughs> we did the New York premiere of Long Story Short by uh, Brendan Milburn and Valerie Vigoda. So, sure. you know, we the company really started as a way for Pete and myself uh, and some of the other founding artists to create an artistic home for our own creative development work. Mm-hmm. Um, but we found that the way that we can serve the New York City uh, and the musical theater community is by providing a place for a lot of different emerging writers and emerging artists creating uh, exciting new work. And early on, we produced all kinds of things, but our mission gradually became focused on new musicals because that seemed to be where the most excitement was. Mm-hmm. And it sort of came to us that this was our mission yeah. to do new musicals. But yeah. So I'm guessing with your progression of uh, Prospect that you have a lot of advice for people who might be thinking of getting their own company together or or in the early stages of the company and wondering how to move it up to the next step. So I'm kind of curious, some of your, like, your nuggets you've picked up, mistakes you've made, wonderful discoveries that you found <laughs> yeah. to move things along. <laughs> I think this is a Cara question. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, 
you know, one thing, because uh, people do ask me this a lot. Yeah. And, you know, so now you can tell them to come <laughs> listen to the podcast. Yes. Um, <laughs> it, you know, I think, well, one of the things um, that I, because a, a lot of people found theater companies, you know, they're college yeah. friends or they study theater yeah. together in grad school and they come to New York and they start a company and, um, you know, a lot of times it's actors who want to create shows together. Yeah. And, and I think one of the reasons that Prospect has succeeded and lasted is that um, we weren't just an ensemble of actors. Um, we were, you know, the, the initial artists who founded Prospect. You know, amongst us, there was a writer, a director, a, a manager, someone who was specifically interested in theater management and got a master's degree in theater mm -hmm. management at Yale. Um, a technical person, um, so and a marketing person. So, like the the company, um, we definitely went into it with a long term view, but um, uh, it wasn't necessarily about just serving any one person's um, you know artistic creative push. It was more about creating a community and a place that a lot of people could work. So, I think one of the things that has sustained us is that we from the beginning involved a lot of different artistic voices. Um, and so if there were times, you know, I, I look back at the history now and there are definitely cycles where I could go like, oh, that was this yeah. era of prospect, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing that uh, I think is really a good piece of advice for anyone who wants to start a company is not to feel like you have to get stuck in any one mold. Because, you know, we've gone through a lot of changes over the past couple of years and we're even changing into yeah. this new residency now. And and um, just knowing that if you're going to grow and evolve as a human being, your company and your artwork is also mm -hmm. going to change. So so I think that there have been moments where we sort of, you know, locked into like, oh, this is how the company works. This is who we are. This is what we do. And then something sometimes internally, sometimes externally has has shifted um, you know, I mean, the economic downturn yeah. in, in the 2009 year was a huge thing. And I think if we hadn't, you know, gone back to, like, why are we doing this and what do we want to do now that there are new circumstances, like, if it had only been about, like, sticking to a formula, then we probably would have just quit. But the fact that we had a clear mission <laughs> and yeah. we could sort of evolve what we were doing to continue serving the mission, even though maybe what we were doing was slightly different. Um, so I do. Uh, that yeah. is an important thing. I've heard that several times. To flexibility. When you write, yeah, flexibility, and when you write your mission statement, to leave a little wiggle room in it, not make it so specific yeah. that it can that the programming yeah. can't evolve. And your evolve. mission statement, you can re-examine it yeah. and like change the language yeah. as as your company. Grew. I mean, I know our, the first draft of our mission statement when we had just graduated yeah. college was like extremely yeah. academic and <laughs> very like you know. Um, I don't know. I think a little more heady than we were our doing a lot of like is. German plays. Yeah. At that point. Uh, we did like Danton's Death yeah. and uh, yeah, like Honest at, Man. At the, yeah, at the beginning we did a lot of classic plays and a lot of you know, and we did a couple new plays, and then we just realized that like the things that we were having the most success with and that people seemed the, to need the most in terms of the New York theater community were producing new musicals, and so then um, about five or six years into the company's lifespan, we decided you know, hey, it seems like the musicals <laughs> thing is what people really need support for and are interested to come see. So let's work more on that. And um, anyway, so I think just having having a, a clear um, guiding reason why you're doing what you're doing and not being afraid to let how you're doing that and how you're serving that mission change. Um, you know, if you don't have as much money or you have more money, you know, um, and also allowing people to, allowing people flexibility. So um, I think that people have to be able to come and go, right? Yeah. Like doing a certain thing at a certain point in time might be really useful for someone's career, but then they may need to step away and yeah. focus on something else. But that doesn't mean that they can like no longer be a part of the group, mm -hmm. right? So having a kind of open community and a flexi flexibility, I think, is what's been the key to our survival. And also that the company was sort of um, formed with some really strong personal relationships at the center. Yeah. So we're all still friends as well as uh, colleagues. Well, it is exciting that you get to 
do so much work with new musicals because I think part of the reason there's such demand for it as you're talking, is the economics of doing musicals in a small independent theater are not good. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, as, as from what I understand, for the most part, independent theater, the 99-seat houses are on a model of how little can we lose, yeah. not yeah. how much can we make. Oh, yeah. and, and, and so with a musical, that... How little we lose is a much greater number because uh-huh. the seats are still fixed and there's more people, uh-huh. and it's just a bigger cost. So how do you how how does that work for you? How how hard is it to to keep going and producing such wonderful? Because you serve a vital force here in this town, uh, giving giving productions to yeah. To I think that is artists. actually you know I was thinking about this this morning um, because we really need to. I think there's there's a hugely robust community of people uh, making musicals, mm-hmm. and there are very limited opportunities for those people to actually see their shows produced. Yeah. And I actually had a, a very frustrating conversation yeah. with a, a a large foundation last week because um, I had written a grant proposal to um, asking for a substantial amount of money. Um, this was a foundation specifically targeted towards supporting early career artists. And, you know, the feedback I got was like, oh, your your application isn't eligible because it looks like your artists are too advanced. And I was and they were we had this back and forth and they were like, well, it says this one project you're looking at doing. The writer's been working on it for six years already. That doesn't really seem to be new. And I'm like, you have no clue how long it takes to, like, put a piece well, together and to raise the money. And there is it, like so. a no man's land in producing where you can put on a showcase. Yeah. There, There's kind of a model that works for putting on an equity showcase. Yeah. But then when you get into this middle area where you know, you're on different contracts yeah. with the union, it's still really expensive for a company like... Uh, prospect to, yeah. to to produce at that level, and yet you're not one of those big institutional theaters yeah. that has their millions coming in yeah. from who yeah. knows where. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, you know, we've always just found a way, and I I do think uh, as we get bigger, it is it is harder to find the resources yeah. to do those full productions because you know we used to be able to do like a great equity showcase production mm-hmm. for seventy five thousand dollars, and now you know a small cast off Broadway production is three hundred thousand. So <laughs> it's it, you know it's just a much different scale of the amount of money. And yes, you're maybe making yeah. more at the box office, but the whole thing is going up. You're still yeah. needing to raise you know even more money. So. I hope that as we grow and continue to bring in more audiences, I mean, this is coming back to the residency at 59 East 59th, the the opportunity, we're going to have literally almost three times as many seats to sell for our production. So that's not only great because more people can see the work, but I I think, you know, what I was saying about having a a large community, not only of artists, but like audiences and supporters, uh, donors is really important. So where we are right now is we really need to find that next group of funders who can come in and like back us, um, uh, you know, and the one, one of the things that I, listening out there, (laughs) (laughs) we also have to figure out what, um, a lot of other, I, I will say it is hard for theaters to do musicals no matter what their size, just yeah. because like, um, they need, you need more things. You need to hire more people. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, uh, the budgets are bigger and you're not necessarily going to charge, yeah. you might charge a little bit more at the box office, but not like twice as much. Right. Yeah. So, um, I think figuring out, um, a lot of other nonprofits that are larger have gone to sort of commercial enhancement partnerships. And I have some mixed feelings about that because while I see it as great when two people can come together and share resources on a project, like there's also this, there is a very different idea of like why you're putting money into something and a commercial theater implies you want to make money off of it. So there's like a whole different agenda that comes into the artistic process. And, um, I've been thinking a lot about like what what are are there innovative business models and what things that we can tap into to develop a you know sort of an ongoing fund to actually produce new work because you know there are so many shows that deserve to be produced and it's just tough mm-hmm. so uh, but we're gonna keep doing it <laughs> yeah all right well do you have any other th- shots you'd like to get out before we wrap this one up and Oh gosh! We missed out of all the wait. We we determined that I don't need to plug the honeymooners because this will be out after. (laughs) (laughs) 
Or maybe Anna, maybe might be coming back someplace. Yes. Maybe with any luck. Always possible. It's always possible. Yes. Um, no, this is this is great, yeah. and um, you know we hope to keep in dialogue with you and yeah. with everyone and. Uh, visit prospecttheater.org and you'll always know what's up uh, next on the boards for Prospect. So. Yeah, prospecttheater.org, pcmills.com to yep. check out some great musicals for your companies buy, out there. Buy some sheet music. Yeah. yeah. yeah you get some great songs uh, <laughs> for auditions, great songs yes. for uh, for shows if there, people are doing, if you're doing theaters doing a cabaret night. Yep. Um, like the Cleveland Award winner, proven, <laughs> really, a, uh, a really uh, not much longer, but a real hidden gem that I uh, have been pleased. I'm pleased to see both of your stars rising. It takes a lot of persistence. I think people just, uh, you know, <laughs> need to remember that it takes. Yeah, yeah. that's the, that's another thing about running a theater company: <laughs> just determination and you know, keeping at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's paid off. Yes. Thank you guys Thanks. so much for coming in. We'll Thank you. check in again Thanks soon. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Listening room. So, one of my favorite musicals of all time has come back to Broadway, Once on this Island, and the cast album has just been released by Broadway Records. So, I thought I'd celebrate a little bit by sharing uh, with you, maybe those of you who haven't heard it yet, Lea Salonga's version of the wonderful song, The Human Heart. And uh, be sure to catch Once on this Island on Broadway. Not only is it one of my favorite song shows of all time, but it's being produced by one of my favorite producers of all time, Ken Davenport. Uh, who you might have met and heard a little bit on this program. All right, here is Human Heart from Once in the Silent. Cameron is equally as involved, if not more so, on a daily basis from the top down. When you talk about the detail and is looking at the way things are lit and stuff, and actually it occurs to me, I mean, obviously he's definitely one of the most successful producers of all time, but beyond that, uh, one thing I think he has to be most noted for in a weird way is all his shows have probably the most iconic logos yeah. <laughs> of any, yeah. how does he do it? Or have you learned anything from him? What's his eye? What's his touch for coming up with? Yeah, I've asked him once logos. about photography yeah. and artwork, and and it's interesting because he says more often than not, and this is this goes across the board for his sort of editorial eye. He doesn't really go in with a brief. He doesn't go in with a plan. He lets the talent of people he hires to fulfill the project deliver something and then he can respond and a lot of it is just gut instinct of what looks like the right photograph and photography has changed over the years you know it's fascinating to look at photos from the beginning of the phantom run which are so dark and blurry versus now which are so crisp and the lighting is is done in a completely different way and how you just everyone's eye has adjusted to sort of demanding that you can never get away with the previous but the, the, the branding has changed as well. I mean, you go back to the original Phantom Mask, and it was sort of a, it had, it had curvatures to the side, it sort of ombre out a little bit. It was always against the black, but there was something murky about it. It didn't just pop in the same way that it's clearer now, it has dimension now. And it's always, I've learned it, I think, on, on, on Les Mis with Cosette, because I get obsessed with how Cosette looks on a piece of advertising. And every time the production launches somewhere, or even within the run, like we did this on the fan, on, 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 on Lemmy's when it was running on Broadway most recently, the look of the art changes in a way. You try a new type of campaign, you put it on a white background, you change the color, you shift what colors are in her hair, and all of that, and I get obsessed with the, the consistency of that and making sure that it's right for that moment and then something will happen because oh no Kevin will do that's me. the thing that's the thing <laughs> I wake up every day in complete and utter fear like let's just get that out there right now right what makes me do what I do on a daily basis abject fear <laughs> uh, it, 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 they the men that I work for mostly men at this point that I work for uh, they they I, I'd work for women yeah, if they hire yeah, me <laughs> uh, the men that I work for no, right I don't, now I don't blame you I'm just no, saying I know. this it's, industry has well, a bit of a problem and the generation yeah. the generation of men that I work for come from a generation where 
especially at that time, you know, you think it back to the producing time of the 80s and the 70s, and, and you think Liz McCann was around. You know, Liz McCann was putting things out there, and there, there weren't a lot of women in that, in that circle, in that world. There's a wonderful picture, I think it was a great photograph Pick of the Wings, Angels Pick up the cast album America, for the new Broadway cast of Once on this Island, it's out on Broadway Records, and I just saw the news today <laughs> that uh, they are sending um, this show out so on tour starting with Cameron, 2019. there is that fear of wanting so it to be right. Be on the you know, I will, for that. I will, and hey, maybe we'll get as with all the folks I think that work in the organization, we just know that the standard is extremely high. You know, I walk by... Kim, I'm going to say this. I walk Up by close. the August Wilson Theater. Uh, a couple theater. episodes ago, I believe it was episode and whatever 12, we talked did, with Seth when they upgraded Sparheim, the lighting within the marquees the, uh, and the vertical plastic tour at the August the Wilson Theater, and his job the color temperature. Make sure you said that name a couple times. <laughs> the color temperature. has saved a portion of this, so we're kind of jumping the lighting into the middle in the marquee of his interview. On the awning and don't forget the versus the color temperature of the lighting so in the vertical but is here, different. Continuing so the Seth pink Sparheim. for Mean Girls, like the white for Groundhog's, uh, Groundhog Day, <laughs> on the vertical reads more orange. Ooh. The pink isn't as exact. Really? And I just know that if that were my front of house, I would be in trouble. <laughs> it just didn't look right. It doesn't look right. And, and, and that's fine, you know. It, but as the ad agencies that I work with here in town know, even with Cameron an ocean away, even with his expectations and his eyes an ocean away, I will go to King Display and have light box tests with plastics over and over and over again until I feel it's right. I feel it's my responsibility to take responsibility for whatever we put out there. And the buck stops with me so that when Cameron or Andrew or Hal or any of these other creators show up and see something, they can only point a finger at me. Like, I'll take it. But you get, you get the best of both worlds that way. You get crushed. <laughs> but then you also are, are lifted up and, and, and appreciated for doing that work. And, and that's how I create a baseline with all the different organizations that we work with. I try to be present for as much as possible. Uh, we were just having a conversation yesterday about a photo shoot for this Phantom tour. We have a new Phantom coming into the tour uh, December, late December of this year. And we need to do photos and get things for press and for, for brochures and things like that. And... We were looking at all these dates because we have a photographer, Matt Murphy, that we work with pretty regularly, and we're very connected with him, and he knows how we operate, and he knows how the productions operate, and he takes beautiful work. And now that he's seeing the show over and over again, it's fun to go in and say, try something different. Yeah. Because always you can, surprise, you can surprise Cameron with new images or a new angle, and if the picture's great, we'll use it, even if it is a picture we've never used before. There's, there's precedent, but there's also... Yeah. No rules. Um, we were looking at dates for photographs, and, and Jenny, who's our, our press rep for the Phantom Tour, said, well, you know, I could be there, and I could run the, the shoot with Matt. <laughs> and I said, yeah, uh. but I don't trust you. <laughs> and she said, yeah, I know. <laughs> and it isn't that I don't trust yeah. her. They could absolutely, I, I've learned this as, a, as, a, as an associate director, you know, I go and I watched Miss Saigon last night. Me being at Miss Saigon last night didn't change the show. Mm -hmm. I'd be fooling myself to think that everyone on that stage was thinking, mm -hmm. oh God, Seth's watching. Let's <laughs> make sure we do certain things. <laughs> no, that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. It might happen when, when the others are in the building. But even then, I think when Hal Prince comes into Phantom Broadway or Lawrence Connor comes out to the Phantom Tour, I think after the first 10 minutes, the cast just sort of, gets in their groove and does their thing. I don't think that they carry the shadow of the presence, if you will, of him with a capital H um, in the building. So uh, I know that when I am in the building, I'm there to observe what they're doing. I don't think they're necessarily serving it up for me. And I have to sort of let that go, that I don't have any control. So whether or not I'm there sometimes, you think, well, why would I even go? It's not going to affect the show, but I do need to see it. Same thing with a photo shoot. He's going to shoot the photos. He's going to take the pictures. I'm not looking through the lens. I, and, and, and we have a relationship where I don't look through mm -hmm. the lens. And we don't look at photos on a computer as we're going. He captures action when we run the show. 
and then we look at it later. And we will look at it later after he's called through and taken out anything he doesn't want us to see. So there's a process. But in being there, if there's a moment where I'm watching and I see something on stage and I go, that's not true. That's not true to what we do. I feel like it's my responsibility with my eye to, to raise my hand and say, no, 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 we have to do that again. You're either playing for the camera or you're not doing enough to be read by the camera from past experience. So... I try to think that I have a purpose, <laughs> but it's purpose. Yeah, I'm having a cue. But it is you know, Cameron. Cameron, it's been fascinating learning from him because he is a director. Now, anyone who works with me who's just heard that's going to roll their eyes. But he is a director, and he is a lighting designer, and he is a scenic designer, and he has an eye for all of it. And if I've learned anything. Or if I needed to describe what I do on a daily basis in the shortest way possible, which I failed at miserably, <laughs> I would say that I'm. You the were still at the intro. Yeah, I'm, I'm the artistic director for his building, and his building is all the shows here. Mm -hmm. So, an artistic director, as I learned from others that I've worked for, like Michael Grandage, the artistic director has their hand and eye on everything, and from a creative standpoint, aware of the finances, aware of what's needed to make the show function as a commercial entity and turn a profit, hopefully. But from a, from the profit can't come unless the art is right. And that means for the packaging of the show, but also for what we see on stage. So that's how I fill my day. Yeah. In the best of company. I had a really unique theater experience. Uh, company that does work on site, site-specific work, which uh, is, a, I think, an earlier cousin to all this immersive work. And Andrew Burroughs is the oldest surviving American play, written 300 years ago, and I got a chance to watch it being performed by a talented group of actors in a building that is 300 years old in the neighborhood that the play was originally set. A wonderful experience. And we have the director for Andrew Burroughs here, to talk about site-specific work, his company, and all of that goodness. Ralph Lewis, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, thanks for coming on. Yeah. So I guess the first thing, tell us a little bit about what attracts you to a play for your company and like why did you choose Anderboros specifically? As a Well, um, my partners and I, uh, Barry and Catherine and, and myself, we, we met as actors. And what's the company's name again? It's called Peculiar Works yes, Project. Right. Yeah. And uh, when we sort of went out on our own, it was a, a time when we were acting and we had performed with a group called En Garde Arts, which did site-specific work. And so we just thought their work was incredible and we wanted to go out and do something like what they were doing. And at the time, uh, there was a lot of vacant space in New York mm -hmm. City empty buildings, especially down in the lower part of Manhattan. And uh, it seems like the moment after we started the company, the whole real estate market changed <laughs> yeah. and it was very different. And it forced us to find different kinds of spaces. Uh, but we, uh, uh, so we thought site-specific work would be a good way for us to tell stories live on stage in different ways and in different places that would give audiences a different experience than just going into some black box and seeing something in front of black velvet curtains. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah. Not that, that there's anything wrong. No, no, <laughs> absolutely not. Absolutely not. And sometimes, you know, I, I long for those days, you know, when we do a show, mm -hmm. we don't just build the sets uh, and hang the lights. We build the backstage. We build the, the box mm -hmm. office. We build the lobby. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we <laughs> build the audience seating risers. So it's a lot more work uh, than just doing your normal production mm -hmm. in, in a theater. Uh, but we've since, you know, we've done so many different kinds of shows over our 24 years, and sometimes they're immersive, sometimes they're interactive, uh, sometimes they're promenade, and the audience just mm -hmm. follows down a, a street or through a building seeing different parts of a piece. Uh, so we've, we've done a lot of different types of site-specific work. It's not just one thing. Uh, but for this piece, uh, which is sort of a... Uh, traditional play in many ways, 
uh, we thought we needed a space that would somehow bring out the history of it. And my day job just happens <laughs> to be uh, down in that area. And one day on my lunch hour, I thought, hey, that restaurant across the street, I should see if they have <laughs> like a banquet room in the back <laughs> or something. And uh, mm. the hostess at the desk said, oh, I think you want the museum upstairs. I'm like, there's a museum upstairs? <laughs> and I was like amazed that there's, you know, three floors of this museum. We went in, we pitched the project, and they were very open to it. They've been lovely hosts for us. But just the idea of having the audience walk through like three different rooms of period artifacts, tables, chairs, forks, knives, plates, paintings, all sorts of stuff that were actually created about the same time the play was being written. It just seemed like mm -hmm. a terrific match. Uh, and it's really turned out great for us. So we've really enjoyed that. So when picking something like Anderboros or others and you're doing site-specific work, I guess my wondering is, you know, kind of the chicken or the egg scenario. Do you look for the sites and then try to find a piece that works with that site? Or do you find a piece and then search for... The, the site for the piece. It is very much a chicken and egg thing. And, <laughs> and sometimes it's the chicken and sometimes mm -hmm. it's the egg. Mm -hmm. It really does vary. You know, we do do a lot of new plays mm -hmm. and we also adapt, you know, classical pieces. Uh, the newer plays, sometimes they take longer to develop, whereas the classical piece, you kind of have yeah. the text of, of what you're going to work with. Uh, so, um, yeah, in this particular, we did a workshop of this piece uh, last November, just the weekend before the election, <laughs> and we actually did it in a boxing ring in Greenwich Village. And that was very cool, very contemporary staging, whereas this, we've gone back to the origins of the play. So it's a completely uh, different experience. Uh, what had really happened, if I can tell you how I found yeah. this play, uh, my best friend gave me a book for a, a birthday gift. And this book is called Before and Behind the Curtain by William Northall. I highly recommend yeah. the book. It was written in 1853, and it's all about what was going on with theater at that, at that time. And basically, it was between City Hall Park and Astor Place. That's mm -hmm. where the theaters were along Broadway and the Bowery. Well, I was bragging to someone mm -hmm. about this book, and they said, hey, would you like to do a book talk of it? So I was like, sure. And so I do this sort of TED talk mm -hmm. about these early theaters, and it gave me an opportunity to go back and say, well, what were the first theaters in New York mm -hmm. and in America? What were the first plays? Actually, I think the oldest play that I could find is something called Ye Cub, Ye Bear <laughs> that was performed in the Williamsburg Colony. Was that the original Gay Pride show? It sounds like <laughs> it. And actually, we would never know that this play existed were it not for the fact that the actors were arrested and put on trial and the judge had had them perform the play mm -hmm. at the trial and the judge said it was just so bad he dismissed the case and the guys were exonerated. <laughs> but after that the, the sort of oldest surviving play that we have in America is Andrew Burroughs. And I was surprised to, to see that it had never been performed before that, that I could find any record of. So we're like, well we got to do this. And then of course you start reading the play and realize it's that old English and it's a it's really hard to read the original and maybe that's why it's never been done uh, but my dramaturg Barbara Yoshida and I we just spent uh, a year before the workshop and then the year after the workshop just changing words, not changing plot or character, things like that, mm -hmm. but just making it more understandable for an audience today. And really, if you've read some of the early American plays, mm -hmm. it's a lot of uh, religious pageant plays. It's a lot of melodrama. America uh, invented the mm -hmm. melodrama, which with mm -hmm. television, we don't really need on the theater quite as much. We mm -hmm. need plays with ideas. And this play had such a great idea. It was written by the colonial governor at the time, Robert Hunter, after he had left office. He had been brought from the, uh, Britain to rule the New York colony at a very delicate time, and the assembly just wanted to have nothing to do with him. Mm -hmm. and, and they just would not pass any of his laws. They would not go along with anything he wanted to do. And really, this was America's first gridlock. I mean, you think politics is bad today? Yeah. It's always been bad. And this play is a great example of that. Uh, but uh, so he wrote this play about to sort of vent his frustrations with with the experiences that he had. 
and all of the characters in the play are based on real factual people in history. Mm -hmm. The villain of the play is based on Reverend V.C., which V.C. Mm -hmm. Street down at the World Trade Center mm -hmm. is named for. He was the head of Trinity Church at the time, and the play is based on mm -hmm an event that took place at the church, which is now known as the Vestment Scandal of 1714, mm -hmm. where someone broke into the church and urinated and defecated on the sacred robes of the church. And the reverend, he wanted this governor, Robert Hunter, to find out who the heck did this. Well, decades later, we learned the reverend actually did it to try to set up mm -hmm. the, the governor for failure. And so this is sort of the, the plot that he then wrote the play about after he left office. So have you thought at all about now that you've done all this work with your dramaturg and made this play more adaptable and you said easier to speak and some of the words of, of publishing or putting this uh, text out for other groups to look at? Well, definitely. I mean, I think one of the things we've talked a lot about over the past couple of months is what is the American canon of classical theater? You know, I mean, when you see all these great classical theaters in the United States, the majority of the work they do is by some British guy named William <laughs> Shake something. Yeah, and, and, that's something and, I'll come to. Yeah. So what are what are the classical <laughs> plays of America's yeah. history? And we're really hoping that maybe we can be just some small part of reintroducing this play into the American canon. And we would love to find ways to connect it with other theaters around the United States in the years to come. So even though we're going to wrap up the production uh, uh, this, this weekend, we are very interested and excited about the possibilities of what we can do with it in the future. And, and hopefully, you know, students who study uh, the history of theater and stumble across this play and try to figure out where it fits in, Maybe they'll want to do productions of it as well because it's really funny. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a farce. It's in, highly influenced on the Commedia dell'arte that was popular in Europe at the time. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, the writer Robert Hunter was also a contemporary of, of uh, Jonathan Swift, who wrote Gulliver's Travels. Mm -hmm. So he was a writer. This wasn't just a politician who decided I'm going to jot mm -hmm. something down. He he was uh, a, a fine writer of his time, and and you know it it so it has kind of an Elizabeth. Beethan restoration feel to the text, mm -hmm. but the plot is very slapstick, farce, fun stuff. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Well, uh, Ralph Lewis, it's been a pleasure chatting with you about Andrew Burroughs and Peculiar Theater Works, and now that'll go again, site-specific works. Um, like I said, I think more people need to look outside the boundaries of, you know, of, of the proscenium wall for where uh, theater and art can happen, so I'm glad yeah. you guys are doing that. Thank and, you. And uh, best of luck with your future endeavors. Great. Thank you very much for your time. Listening Room. The Band's Visit is a new show on Broadway this season. It's been out for a little while, and so has the cast album. But uh, I guess this episode, I featured another show that's existing, so I figured I'd do another one. And I just love David Yazbek, so I was really excited to listen to this cast album. Uh, David Yazbek, for those of you who don't know, wrote The Full Monty and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, two of the most fun, clever musicals, I think, of the past 20 years. And it's great to see that he's back with the band's visit. And here is Omar Sharif. The cast album is out on Shikaboom Ghostlight and available all sorts of places, digital stores, etc. Go check it out. Here's Omar Sharif. Um, and Omar Sharif came floating on a jasmine wind from the west from the south honey in my ears spice in my mouth dark and thrilling strange and sweet cleopatra And they floated in on a jet. 
Book Drop. Peter Bodio has had a storied career. I think storied is a good word since he just put out a book on uh, <laughs> what he's learned as the Broadway general manager, demystifying the most important and least understood role in show business. And I think that's an adequate take. And uh, I love getting people who are behind the scenes on here. Uh, the program I founded at the University of Providence is Theater and Business Arts, which is that even for artists, it's a, they have to learn and understand that they're a business. They're part of the business, absolutely. <laughs> well, they are a business themselves. They are Their career is a business. So um, I always like hitting different areas, too, but where they can go just being an actor. So... What inspired you to write this book? What 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 is your what is your elevator pitch? What should <laughs> well, uh, thank you. Um, I am a Broadway general manager, so I'm I'm writing about something I know very well. Um, I, I think I was largely motivated uh, out of self defense. Uh, I have friends who've known me for thirty years, and they still have no idea what I do, and they still introduce me to people as a stage manager. Uh, no. A uh, company manager, uh, no. Uh, a production manager, no. So I really felt that that this terribly important and complex position of a general manager uh, to people outside the industry. And even to people inside the industry. Well, a, a lot. I don't know what you're... A lot. I mean, unless you're sitting at my elbow in my office. Yeah. 10 hours a day, <laughs> it's hard to know all that a general manager does. But I, I really felt that this position uh, needed to be demystified. I chose that word very carefully. And I hope that my book, Broadway General Manager, will accomplish that. <laughs> so what, sh- what are some of the shows that you've worked on first before we, we talk about the book? Oh, and what I worked on, uh, I, I've primarily done plays, which I'm very drawn to. Uh, I did the recent revival of Love Letters with Mia Farrow and Brian Dennehy as one cast. Brian Dennehy, who liked it so much, he said, sign me up again. And Carol Burnett, uh, Alan Alda, and Candace Bergen. So Love Letters. Uh, I did the revival of The Trip to Bountiful with Miss Cicely Tyson, for which she won a Tony Award. I have done Sly Fox with... Richard Dreyfus on Broadway, A Moon for the Misbegotten with Kevin Spacey, um, lots. <laughs> well, I, I th- so we also got to somewhere in this interview get to talking about what has changed in uh, production because I know that the play that we were talking about that you've seen the move from more open-ended runs or you know commercial runs to the thirteen-week limited engagement. We got to yeah, that's that's really a. a business plan meant to focus the ticket buyer on, oh, 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 uh, this is not going to be around for long. I really have to plan to see it now rather than, oh, that's something I'd love to see one day, but let me see a musical first. (laughs) I mean, does it happen that much that the, um, I mean, is it really just more the marketing ploy to get the folks and get them in there than this idea that we've got a profit and do a run in 13 weeks? Well, the other part of it, of course, is that it's a great help to sell tickets if you have a big star, uh, a film star, let's say, or, or television star. And their schedules are such that they really rarely can give you more than that. So it's a combination of they can't give you more than 12 weeks or 16 weeks, and you can sort of make lemonade mm-hmm. out of that lemon fact and use it to really focus people on seeing your show immediately. So with uh, the demystifying the process, what would you say is the most misunderstood or the, the thing people most don't know that you actually do? I think it's the entire job. Um, There's not one aspect Mm -hmm. of it. I'm basically, uh, I sometimes say in show business, I'm the business half. Mm -hmm. So I'm the producer's right-hand person for all things business and financial related, but with a heavy emphasis on financial, anything that has a cost implication that needs to be quantified, that needs to be forecast, uh, the producer looks to me. The first thing I do is I budget the show. The producer doesn't know how much money 
they're going to have to raise. They, they have sort of a ballpark. How uh, do you savvy. budget a show when theaters are booked way in advance and you have to shuffle and you don't know when a theater is going to open? And I would imagine the theater itself changes the budget immensely. And if you're not raising money with investors beforehand, how do you even... I, I'm, I'm guessing this is some of what you speak to? Yeah. <laughs> it, it is tricky. Um, you learn very early on that it's very important that any budget draft that goes out mm-hmm. has the word estimated yeah. on it. And as we like to say, it's a living, breathing document. So you you originally ask questions of your producer and, and hopefully your director, if, if that person has already been identified, and you make assumptions. I always have an assumption column on my budget. It's, it's not just numbers, but next to the numbers, I say, supposes that, and then state something, um, supposes that the understudies are not going to be asked to begin work until the third week of rehearsal, uh, for example. And then as things change, you update, you give your budget draft a one higher number. It's no longer the first draft, it's the second draft, or it's the 25th draft. And as you get new information that affects the dollars and cents, you incorporate that and, and try to make the assumptions clear so everyone knows, oh, okay, well, gee, that assumption is no longer true. That's going to have to adjust. How much do budgets change based on the theater or the season or when it opens, you know, especially with plays, because you're talking about a, usually a shorter run? In, interestingly, the, the theater itself doesn't have a, a huge variable cost impact. One might think it does, but Broadway theaters basically are in, in two categories. Play houses, which tend to be close to a thousand seats, with a few exceptions, but on the whole, they're about a thousand seats. And then there are musical houses, which are bigger, because musicals tend to be bigger, have more people employed, they have an orchestra, they have dancers, um, they often have more scenery, so they need more seats to generate more money to cover their higher costs. So within those two categories, there's not a huge variance in in what a playhouse will cost you. Um, And you have to be careful because sometimes the only theater that's available as all the elements are coming together for your show and you you really need to go forward or you're going to lose a key person is a house that that may be too big you don't really want to put a play in a musical house unless it happens to be a play that feels like a musical and and by that i mean something like War Horse, okay. which is very theatrical, and it has there's something slightly bigger about it than just a play that's set in a kitchen. Um, so it, it really is important, to the extent you have any control over it, to try to get the right theater for your play. But sometimes you got to take what's available and make the most of it. Mm-hmm. What? What is the most important thing? There have been a few plays recently that have managed to not just do the limited run engagement, but continue running for you know a year or two or more. Um, obviously, creatively, there's different things, but on a financial level, do you sense different things that have been what has allowed those plays to run on a financial budgeting system versus another? Well, those are the wonderful, rare exceptions, a play that really is able to run a year or more. And I would say it's very helpful if there's something so special about the play itself that the play becomes the star and it's not really important to the public who's in it. I'm going to go back to War Horse. It had a wonderful original cast and a terrific young actor who won the Tony Award playing the autistic child who goes on this journey. And he was great, and he did win the Tony, but he was right out of school. No one had known his name before. And the play itself was so remarkable in its writing, in its staging, in its theatricality, that I don't think it was imperative to the average theatergoer that they see it with that wonderful original cast member. I mean, people are going to see Hello, Dolly to see Bette Midler, primarily. Uh, although I hear Donna Murphy's fantastic. 
Um, but with something like The Curious Incident, I don't think they knew the names of the cast members and it didn't matter. They just, or, or War Horse. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, those are two very good examples. Well, Peter Bodio, um, your book again is available. Um, I'm it's guessing, available everywhere. I was going to say available everywhere. Digital makes things awesome. And, and between Amazon and physical and digital, Barnes I'm guessing, and Noble, and, 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 and on its own and, its own website, which cleverly is named the same as the book, Broadway General Manager, Manager dot com. All right, um, and it's 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 really about the business of show business. Yeah, and something people need to know about because it affects everything. It affects without everything. the money, there is no art. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. You, you, I mean, commercially in the commercial yeah. world, you need to have some sort of balance between the art and and the business plan that is viable. Well, best of luck. Uh, best Thank of luck you. with your upcoming shows, and Thank best you. of luck being scared at The Exorcist. And <laughs> I'm keeping my fingers crossed. And it was a pleasure talking to you. My, my pleasure as well. Thanks, Michael. Talking the Trades. The Drama Bookshop is in its 100th year celebration, and we have uh, Eleanor Spirit, who is the buyer for the Drama Bookshop, and she does so many other things. She uh, does a copy editing and creates acting editions of plays for playwrights. But she also, as the buyer, knows a thing or two about how, act, how authors need to go about the process and what they need to think about with their uh, <laughs> titles and what they're writing. And then maybe what it takes to convince the buyer of shops to actually uh, take that book. So we're going to kind of hit a little bit of all those issues. Eleanor Spirit, how are you doing? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Good. It's good, good. to have you. Thank you. <laughs> so the Drama Bookshop... Uh, that this is quite a venerable institution. I love the drama bookshop. <laughs> Thank you. And a uh, hundred years. A hundred years. And mm -hmm. how long have you been a buyer? I the have buyer. been there for sixteen years. I came in in two thousand and one. Um, the owner now, Roseanne Seelan, has been there about forty eight years. She married the boss in the sixties, and she's been there ever since. And when Arthur Seelan, who she married, uh, passed away. She brought in her nephew, Alan Hubby, uh, to be her partner. And that's his actual second incarnation there. He was there for about 10 years in the 1980s. And then he came back on, I think, in 2000. And he's been there that long. So we've been working together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the 100-year the thing is kind of a pretty big deal. I mm -hmm. can't imagine New York City without... The drama book How shop, many the shops scene. are 100 years old in New York City? And I seem to remember, I can't remember the specific details, but that it seemed a couple years ago there was a pretty big scare that drama bookshop might not get to 100. Right. Um, <laughs> I have to tell you, I was never worried about that. It, the, the, the shop is very stable and it's, it's a standard. It's not going anywhere. Uh, but we did have a very big uh, ice dam break leak from the pipe upstairs one cold February morning and uh, took out a good portion of the front of the shop. It's storefront, so we, we had to close and fix very quickly, uh, repair, repair, repair. We had a lot of help. Our fans, our customers, our base kept coming back and buying, asking if they could help, donating. Uh, Lin-Manuel Lin Miranda put out a video. He? <laughs> <laughs> He's out there. He is a great fan of the shop, and we loved having him worked there at the shop, uh, writing In the Heights, and then uh, we all checked. He would come in and with his hair growing longer and longer and longer yeah. for his role in Hamilton until it opened. And uh, he put out uh, several tweets and a video asking people to buy because helping us would be a great thing to keep it open, and helping us would be buying the books. Any book. Did you say he worked there? No. Oh, well, he, he, wrote, he... he wrote uh, In the Heights down in our basement, oh, okay. actually in the Arthur Seelan Theater. Mm -hmm which is a black box theater that he used uh, with Backhouse Productions and, and his team to write In the Heights. Mm -hmm. And then after that, they worked uh, in the Hamilton, uh, on Hamilton in another space. Okay. Um, but he did put out the word, and his fans and followers uh, came to the shop, wrote to us, called us, and bought like crazy. 
We also had the launch for Hamilton, the Revolution, the book. It was so incredible of him to ask for the launch to be at the Drama Bookshop. There are bigger venues, but he asked for the launch to be at our shop. We had a line around the block. (laughs) We sold something like 1,600 books in a day. Wow. (laughs) Just that one book. And he came and he stayed the entire time. And he signed every book and said hello to every person. And that was fun. And it was great. And it showcased the shop. Uh, And that's what we do. We do lots of events like that as well. But the shop uh, repaired, recovered. Um, We're back. Uh, strong, and here we are at our 100-year celebration we just had a few weeks ago. It was wonderful. And when you say the front of the building was damaged, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who know the shop and is worried about one of the animals who's always out front. The, the animal all right? I, I all the animals are okay. The, I mean, <laughs> it just so happened that evening no animals were in the shop. It was too cold. But the cat that everybody knows, Mr. Yeah. Humphrey, went home with Roseanne to live a nice leisurely retired life. (laughs) And we now have two dogs that come almost every day. We have a Spitz and an English Spaniel. So people like to come and just see the dogs sometimes. And my last student who came here with me last time, I try to bring a student from our program every time to get an experience to meet, went broke at your store. (laughs) He he walked in and came out with no money. So, (laughs) But once he gets the job from reading what he read... He will, he will have money to live on. Oh, he, he wasn't upset in the slightest. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, we have a, a multitude of items, uh, and it's not just theater. The whole back of the store are plays, yeah. individual plays, acting editions and trade editions. And a really good staff. I mean, like I was... An incredible staff. Stocking our, new, our library now for the new program at a university, and I, mm-hmm. I absolutely had to come to the drama bookshop, got them to sit the budget to come you know, shop in person, and mm-hmm. great staff. Like, I need, I want plays that have a lot of women... You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> women's roles mm-hmm. in them. And no question right away, there was like two people in the thing. They were going, grab this plate, this plate, this was Going straight to the place, pulling them out of the shelf, stuffing in my basket. And, yeah, it's um, an amazing staff. They yeah. read plays, new, the new plays that are coming in and the traditional classic plays so that we know what the characters are, what the settings are. When someone comes in and asks just that, mm. they know where to go. And they, they're amazing. They're amazing. And it just, it's a pleasure to work with them. And people call from all over the world for that kind of input and that kind of help. Yeah. And we have instructors who tell their students like, yeah, you to ship. go yeah. and get something for yourself. And these are sometimes fresh off the bus mm-hmm. um, acting students. And they come to us and we have to walk them through and tell them new plays, classic plays. They haven't read some of the classics yeah. yet. And try to be as helpful as they we can. They told me I needed contrasting yeah. monologues. Yes, and we have, we have monologues, but we have a whole shelf of monologue books yeah. with several different publishers. And we do, um, we do prompt the students to, even if they look at monologues, to always go and read the entire play, because then you have the context. And, um, but we work with them. Whatever they need, we, we try to get them what they need. And it's not just plays. If film students come in, we have film scripts and books about film, uh, books about directing, uh, set design, makeup, puppetry. We have gift items. We have how to do business, directories. directories of things for all the business aspects mm-hmm. and how to act on the different methods of acting, improv, humor, uh, voice, singing, uh, tapes on for accents, and I'm going to miss a few things. Mm-hmm. But we have lots of things, all to do with the performing arts community. All right. So then you yourself, I mean, looking at these things, also, uh, you said offer, offer a service, work for hire to help uh, playwrights convert their plays to an acting edition. To an acting edition, which is different than a trade yeah. edition. Um, and this I do outside of the shop, but with the full support of the shop. Um, it's uh, Spirit Publishing, just using my name, Spirit Publishing. Spiritpublishing.com is the website. And what I really enjoy doing is working with writers to get their plays in the proper format. It should be a completed play. They're ready to publish it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it might not get picked up by other traditional publishers. I always urge them first to try that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have their protocols and parameters. And if they don't get picked up, they come to someone like me. And I put it in the proper format. And I have a lot of experience. I worked Drama Display Surface for many years as their publisher. I know about uh, the business. So that's what I bring to the table. It's, there are other self-publishers out there, many of them, though, work on a percentage. I do not. I am a work-for-hire. What I do is I walk you through, I copy edit, I do the formatting, I get it out to you in an acting edition form, 
and the rest is yours. If you sell it, you make the money. If you get a production, you make the money. I, I will give you a hug, but I don't want anything <laughs> else from you afterwards. I just want it to be done right, but it's a work for hire. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming by today. Thank you very much. It's only just up the block, actually. Just up the block. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. Curtain Call. That wraps up this episode. Um, again, I'd just like to remind everybody, uh, please share this around. Tell people about it. We really rely on word of mouth. We don't really have an ad budget here, and I don't have time with my job to just sit constantly and promote on Facebook. It's uh, <laughs> hard enough for me to get this together. we got a brand new episode coming out next week. We're going to be doing one a week until I'm done, so we got uh, two more. Yep. And uh, remember, we're on YouTube, brand new, um, starting to put up the episodes as they come, and then I'll probably start uploading some of the past ones. Uh, it's hard to search right now because we don't have that many subscribers on our YouTube channel because we haven't really done YouTube content. So if you can subscribe, we need like a thousand subscribers to name the channel Broadway Bullet in the <laughs> header. So that would be really awesome if you'd search Broadway Bullet um, on YouTube and uh, subscribe to our channel, even if you listen on a podcast server or SoundCloud. All right. So we will see you again next week. We got lots of great stuff for you, as always. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting out and getting some more material for you again in May. Okay. Thank you.